Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. I'm Lance Therner, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Landa Schiebinger about her book, Secret Cures of Slaves, People, Plants, and Medicine in the 18th Century Atlantic World, out last year, 2017, by Stanford University Press. And this book examines the context, programs, and contingencies of medical experimentation in the British and Fresh French West Indies from the 1760s to the early 19th century. Uh, physicians were enlisted into the plantation systems to ensure the greatest profitability of the enslaved workforces, but European medicine was not alone. Indeed, many slaves looked to medical practices of African origin, Amer Indian origin, and adapted local traditions for convalescence. Schiebinger analyzes the circuits and structures of knowledge exchange within the Caribbean colonies and between the, these islands and Europe. She brilliantly illuminates how and why some practices were adopted and appropriated and why others were prohibited and how the col colonial crucible so often resulted in the loss of vibrant medical traditions and knowledge. So, uh, oh, and Professor Schiebinger is the John L. Hines Professor of History at Stanford University. So, uh, welcome, Londa. Thank you. Thanks, Lance. Um, so I'd like to just start a little bit of how you came to this project and how it developed out of your prior um, path-breaking work, Plants and Empire. For the historian, setting the questions for a book is a matter of discovery. And I have always found that when I'm researching one book, as I was doing with Plants and Empires, I find a super story for the next book. And in this case, I stumbled upon John's choir experiments with smallpox inoculation in a population of 850 slaves in rural Jamaica in the 1760s. That is a huge population. And I thought, wow, there might be a story here. What was the process of creating a larger project out of that? Well, I was very interested when I saw this um, experiment with slaves. I, you know, it, I thought about the Tuskegee syphilis experiments that took place in the, in the U.S. South uh, in the early 20th century from uh, 1932 to 1972, where 600 African-American men were offered by the U.S. Public Health Service were offered food and free medical care and burial insurance for participating in the study. And uh, these uh, men, these Alabamans, were terribly exploited in this experiment. And during that time, we knew how to cure syphilis. You use penicillin, you can cure syphilis. Nonetheless, these men were not treated because the U.S. Public Health Service wanted to see the natural course of the disease. They were studying that. So I thought, well, very interesting. We know uh, from Tuskegee, we know from Todd Savitt's work that African-Americans were very much exploited, exploited in medical experiments, especially in the U.S. South. And so I wondered, aha, is this the case in the big sugar plantations in the Caribbean a century earlier, so uh, in the late 18th century. 
So I set my project, I always compare empires. In this case, I compared the British empires and the French empire. And uh, so I primarily focused on the islands of Jamaica and Saint-Domingue, which is today Haiti. Um, and these were the big sugar, they, they put the U.S. South to shame. They were the big money makers in the 18th century. And I was very curious. Here you have um, a population, a huge op a population of what you might say are controlled subjects, of subjects who would be available, whose bodies would be available for medical experimentation. And I wanted to know, were they exploited um, in the same way that they were later? And so, you know, just speaking about the Caribbean as a whole, it's a, a very particular economy, as you were explaining with the, the sugar plantation system. Uh, to what extent do we see something of there being a unique medical culture or cultures within this context? Um, yes, so there was. There was a unique context. I call this the Atlantic World Medical Complex. Um, what's interesting about the 18th century in the Caribbean islands, such as Jamaica and Haiti and Grenada and so on, is that there was a mixing of African knowledge, Amerindian knowledge, and European knowledge. This was a time when Europeans were exploiting the area economically and politically, but they didn't know about tropical medicine. And so very often they were stronger militarily, but their troops would be defeated by yellow fever, for instance. By contrast, the Africans and Amerindians, the indigenous people to the islands, knew about tropical medicine. Um, and so I try to trace how this knowledge uh, mixed at the time, how the Europeans learned about African cures, um, what type of knowledge the Amerindians, the Tainos, the Arawaks, and the Glebes still held, and how Europeans evaluated this knowledge and used it. <clears throat> one of the problems, of course, if I could just say, one of the problems, of course, in doing this kind of history is that we have documents only from the Europeans. The Amerindians uh, did not write in, in this period, um, and the Africans, of course, uh, had no time they had no energy, they had no paper and pencils, so they didn't record what they were using. Um, and so we, uh, our knowledge of all of this is mediated through European sources. But European physicians did write a lot, and the French in particular were good anthropologists and said who was doing what. We see that women were contributing cures. We see, obviously, we see that Africans were contributing many cures. Um, and so we do have ways of getting at this, this information, though it's not ideal. Yeah. And you write in the introduction that one of your, um, one of the things you wanted to study in that is uh, to what degree 
uh, slave medicine, as it is often called, is uh, of an African origin or whether it's um, a more recent adaptation. What were you able to discover about that? Well, I saw one cure in particular, which was of great interest, and it was a cure for yaws, which is a terrible uh, bacterial infection, and it breeds mostly in areas where people are poor and poorly fed. So it just swept through uh, plantations uh, in this period because, of course, the slaves were always malnourished. Uh, But one interesting experiment caught my eye, and you might call it a (laughs) cure-off between a slave, an African slave's cure for yaws, and the European doctor. So one of these plantation owners, Alexander J. Alexander, uh, came back to his plantation from Scotland, uh, to his plantation after being away for a number of years. And he was extremely upset because many of his slaves were in the hospital, the plantation hospital. Now, I should interject here. They were called hospitals, but they were hot houses, the idea they were not pleasant or very clean or very nice. The idea was to uh, keep the Yaws patients away from the the rest of the working population. Uh, So uh, Alexander, who was a man of science, he had studied at the University of Edinburgh, this planter, uh, he so he was he was distraught with his European doctors, and he asked, he found, he heard that one of his slaves knew the cure from the, his country, so presumably Africa. And this planter, this plantation owner, set up what we would call a great medical experiment. He gave four of his Yaws patients to the European doctor to cure, and he gave two patients to the African doctor to cure. And after um, a couple of weeks, the African doctor's cure worked, and the European doctors didn't. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't know about it. They wouldn't have recorded it. So then uh, Alexander gave all of the patients to the African doctor to cure. And after uh, several months, the vast majority of his slaves were then well and could go back to work. So the question, but then the interesting question is, what was this cure that the African doctor had? And I was very interested because everybody assumed it was an African cure. Because we lack documents, I decided to turn to plants to decide exactly whose knowledge this was. Was it Amerindian knowledge? Was it African knowledge? Who was the curator of this knowledge? So I took the plants that were used in the cure, and they were called, the local names were Bois-Fer and, and Bois-Royal, uh, so ironwood and royal wood. And I decided to see, okay, are these African plants? If they're African plants, we might think, yes, this man brought this cure with him from Africa. In tracing the plants, uh, I had to forget all about the Bois Royal, the royal wood, because that's such a general name, it could be anything. But the Bois Fer, the what we would call ironwood, it's not what we in 
English call ironwood, but it's what the French call bois faire. This was very interesting. And I was able to find that this is indeed an American plant, indigenous to the Americas, and therefore I had to imagine that there was some kind of conduit from the Amerindians, the native people, the indigenous people living in this area and the African populations, that these two populations were exchanging cures. And what was so interesting about that is that the slave was on an English plantation, Alexander J. Alexander is Scottish, the plantation in Grenada is an English plantation, yet the slave was identifying these plants to Alexander, the plantation owner, using a French name. Of course, we have to remember that Grenada was conquered by the English uh, very recently, uh, you know, in the 1760s, and therefore this man must have been, this slave man must have been a slave in the French um, medical complex. And if I hadn't compared empires, the French and the English empire, I would never have seen any of this. That's fascinating. And so what, you know, why, why did this Alexander, J. Alexander and the other physicians you study, why did they decide that they needed to underdo, undertake experiments within this colonial context instead of, uh, simply receiving their medicine from Europe? Well, <clears throat> medicines from Europe uh, typically didn't work for tropical disease. Furthermore, medicines coming from Europe were sent on ship. They were often old when they arrived. They could be damaged during the voyage. If there was a storm, they could get wet. Um, and as I said before, the Europeans really did not know how to treat tropical disease. But then, because medical experimentation was starting in Europe, they felt obliged to test these new cures that they were encountering in the Americas. And so it becomes very interesting uh, that they have what we would today call clinical trials. Now, uh, clinical trials, a lot of historians of medicine will tell you, well, There wasn't such a thing until the 20th century. But we see already in the 18th century, we see that all, all countries across Europe were using similar protocols. There were protocols, rules of conduct, ethics, which determined how a physician should test a new drug. And so did these physicians, were they planning to to get this knowledge and send it back to Europe? Were they planning to uh, develop their careers as uh, to not only be physicians, but scientists? Or uh, was this intended to be uh, part of uh, how you operate a colony? Yeah, so that's those are all very interesting questions. The physicians who were working on plantations were, for the most part, European men who were unemployed and out of luck. They had served as soldiers and sailors in time of war. And after the war, there there were no opportunities in Europe. So they went out to the colonies to find some kind of work. 
Now, the best of them had potentially gone to medical school in Europe. Those were few and far between. Many of them were trained as surgeons on naval vessels, and then they could easily be surgeons and then slide into being physicians, although the training between surgeons and physicians was quite different at that time. Um, Well, it still is. Um, And so these physicians would just come to Jamaica, they would get some kind of introduction, and then they would maybe get a gig on a plantation. Then you have to remember that these physicians hardly had time to read, to keep up with any kind of literature. There were very few books. They had no time. They might have, if you take someone like John Quire, they might have 5,000 patients on many different plantations, and they rode horseback between the plantations. So economically, they were paid a certain sum to take care of the slaves uh, per year. They were paid per, per head, and they would then be called when they were needed, or they would make the rounds and uh, take care of slaves who were in the plantation hospitals or who were ill. So um, very few of them were men of science. Very few of them were trained in these, in these sorts of experiments. But we do find a few, and they're, they're very, very interesting. As they're uh, beginning to undertake these experiments, uh, and some of them, you know, it's not just about the yaws, it's about things like uh, determining where and what uh, skin pigment is and uh, cures such as using cold water. Uh, What are the, the ethics that they're thinking they need to bring to this context or that they do bring? And uh, what, how do these ethics play out within the context of slavery? Well, so let me back up a minute. Maybe I'll uh, describe another one of these experiments. I think uh, J. Alexander J. Alexander's experiment was done very carefully, the one that, that I talked about earlier. But let's take uh, John Quire's experiment with 850 slaves um, experimenting with inoculation for smallpox. Inoculation for smallpox is a inoculation is a forerunner of vaccination, and uh, the way you inoculate someone is to take a lance, to take a little surgical instrument, and make punctures in the skin, maybe up to five punctures in the arms and legs of any one person, and then you take, sorry to say, you take pus from an infected person, and you put that under the skin of a healthy person in the hopes that you will induce uh, a, a gentle form of disease, then once someone is inoculated for smallpox, they are immune for life. So it was, it was a good thing to do. So Quire did his experiments in the, six, in the 1760s, and he did them because there was smallpox epidemic rushing across Jamaica. He would have inoculated these slaves whether he did his experiments or not because the plantation owner would have required it. Uh, Inoculation had been tested out in Europe since the 1720s um, and it was pretty much accepted that it was safe 
But we see that Choir took this opportunity. He was a man of science. He took this opportunity to do experiments with these slaves that would not have been allowed in Europe. So in particular, he wanted to know if you could inoculate pregnant women. Pregnancy was a big question because if smallpox epidemic was rushing through a plantation or London or Paris or some other place, pregnant women were going to be exposed and they could potentially die. But in Europe, the rules were that you did not inoculate a pregnant woman for fear that she would miscarry. And especially if the woman was pregnant with the heir of an aristocratic family, you would not at all try inoculation. So here, Choir had an opportunity to answer a question that was burning in Europe. People wanted to know, is it safe to inoculate pregnant women? And here, here he had an opportunity to use slave bodies to test that. So he inoculates pregnant slaves, again, something going against European practice, and he sends back the good news that, in fact, you can inoculate pregnant women, and it's perfectly safe. Now, this news follows along the usual networks between the colonies and uh, men, so men of science in the colonies and men of science in Europe. Uh, and so he sent it by letter into Edinburgh, or well, no, into London, to uh, Donald Monroe, who was a member of the scientific circles there. Monroe read the letter at a scientific meeting. Uh, it would later be published in a journal and then collected in a book. That was the usual pathway of how knowledge circulated. But the men in London were not so sure. They sent a letter back to John Choir and said, hmm, can you please test this again? So Choir, uh, he went to work and he tested it again and sent a second letter back to London. Of course, you have to remember it takes months for these letters to go back and forth. It's not email and it's certainly not, uh, you know, priority mail or anything like that. So months and months on a ship. So he sends a second letter back and says, yep, it's true. You can inoculate a pregnant woman. But the men in London, again, say, <laughs> and we can follow this in the correspondence, say, you know, we still don't think so. And then they say, and this is, I believe, the first mention of race in human experimentation. They say, we're not sure that your experiments with African women, they call them Negro women, um, we're not sure that these experiments are valid for our fine and delicate European women. So Choir tests it out again, and then he finds out that, in fact, two women had miscarried when they were inoculated, but because birthing was the work of slave women on the plantation. It was women's work. Uh, doctors didn't get involved with midwifery at this time. Nothing called obstetrics existed at this time. This was women's work, birthing. Whether it was European women or African women, it was women's work. And so Choir hadn't been told about the miscarriages from the inoculation. 
Now we have to, so not only was birthing women's work, we have to remember that there was a deep political context to birthing politics on slave plantations at this time. As discovered in my book, Plants and Empire, um, African women often aborted their children so that their children would not become slaves as they were. Um, African women sometimes uh, exercised infanticide. They killed their babies, but they often aborted them using certain herbs uh, that people knew about. Um, and so to tell the European doctor about miscarriages was something, it was not common. You would not divulge this to the European doctor. Now, I have to say, I have to say that John Quire himself um, had mistresses, many, you know, several African mistresses uh, who were the mother of mothers of his children. He then had one long-term uh, partner. Um, and so he knew very well African culture as it was practiced in the colonies. And he, you know, he was no stranger to that community. So he did finally find out that two of these women um, had miscarried. Um, and he sent this information back to London. Then he and uh, the men in London have a real falling out. Uh, Choir continues to believe that you safely inoculate pregnant women, but the people in London think not. Plus, they think there are these racial divides that you can't actually test something on an African body and have it be valid for a white body, a European body. So I find this to be a very, very interesting um, divide between experimental practices in Europe and experimental practices in the colonies. And now you ask about ethics. So what kind of ethics? So scientists get pretty enthusiastic about their science. So what were the ethical breaks that held uh, people in check, especially in the colonies where one would imagine you have slave bodies that are easily exploited? So um, I was very, very curious about this. Um, I wanted to know who was used for medical experiments in the 18th century and what were the ethics of experimentation. Now, I'll start in the Caribbean, but I can then tell you what the ethics are in Europe, which is very interesting. So in the Caribbean, I had started this book looking for exploitive experiments. And I have to say, Choirs was the most dramatic I found. Well, James Thompson had some dramatic ones as well. So there were some dramatic experiments and people were exploited. But for the most part, slaves were not exploited in the 18th century in the Caribbean because they were valuable property of powerful masters. The master wanted slaves to work and make profit for him or her. There were some women who owned plantations. Um, and the physician was hired to keep those people healthy and working, to be economically viable for the master. So the master had no interest in science. The master had no interest in making available his workforce to learn something about medicine that might potentially help Europeans, but might not. Um, and so 
it was a no-go. The master's will trumped everyone in the Caribbean. The slaves, of course, had no consent. I have to say patient consent was not an issue in the 18th century for anyone involved, any of the patients involved in experiments, but certainly for slaves, they had no power to say yes or no. They had no control over their own bodies. Um, And even the physicians on the plantation often had to work against their will using cures that the master wanted them to use. So even the physician's uh, advice did not trump the master's will. There was one goal, and that was profit. Now, if you look at ethics in uh, Europe, it's very interesting. I wanted to know then who was used in medical experimentation in the 18th century, and there were many poor souls who were used for this. It was mostly the poor, and it was also soldiers and sailors. So the poor would go to hospitals, they went to the Edinburgh Clinic, and they would be treated, uh, let's say, for free uh, at charity, but in return, their bodies could be used to answer scientific questions. Now, Edinburgh did uh, introduce the beginnings of what we would call uh, an IRB, an Institutional Review Board. The physician needed to ask the board, the advisory board of the hospital, in a sense, needed to register his experiments. Um, And then another kind of ethical break that was on uh, physicians' enthusiasm for science was that all of the experiments were recorded. The doctor would tell the medical students, would lecture to the medical students. All of the cases in the hospital would be explained and described. So uh, the students would write all this down. They often published their notes. Um, And so you can see that the, the physician couldn't do something secretly, it would be known. And so there would be, uh, you know, moral outrage if things were done that were too bad. So who you did not want to be in the 18th century was a poor person, an orphan, um, a soldier, or a sailor. And and so to return back over to the other side of the Atlantic, to the Caribbean, um, and as we're coming closer to the close of this interview, how does this practice of medicine... um, figure in the wider politics of slavery. And, uh, of course, I'm thinking about the prohibition of things like Obea and and voodoo. Yeah. So we have to remember that knowledge created in this period in the Caribbean did not respond to science for its own sake, but was fired in the colonial crucible of conquest, slavery, and violence. So while Europeans valued African knowledge, they also feared it. Something called obeya was practiced by Africans in the British islands, not in the French islands. Obeya is specifically, we know from uh, Jerome Handler's work, obeya was specifically a term used for these African practices in the British islands. And it was practiced especially in Jamaica and not as strongly in some of the other islands. So Obeya was medical cures using herbs as medicines, but it also involves spiritual practices. 
Europeans were interested in the herbs and the kinds of medical techniques that the Obeah doctors used, but they were very afraid of the spiritual practices. So Obeah was called, uh, these similar kinds of practices were called voodoo in Haiti. Um, and uh, people thought that Obeah men or women could, um, you know, hex a person. It's kind of a witchcraft. And there were many instances where slaves would die on a plantation um, because the Obeah doctors wanted to destroy the master's property. And so then if you could uncover, if the master could uncover who the Obeah doctor was, then um, people would be released from this hold. Now, Europeans were so afraid of these practices that Obeah was outlawed in Jamaica in the 1760s. Obeah was accused of being responsible for the Tacky Rebellion, which was the uh, rebellion of the runaway slaves called Maroon Slaves against the British. This was a war that Britain never won. They finally had to come to an agreement with the Maroon slaves. And you can still, I have visited Maroon communities in the rural areas, especially in the hilly mountain areas. Um, so the British in Jamaica outlawed Obea. No one could, uh, you would be potentially killed or deported, certainly deported, if you were discovered to be an Obea doctor or either a man or a woman. Now, in um, the French, we're very concerned with voodoo, and voodoo is much sketchier to us than Obea, um, but they were so concerned about poisoning. The Africans were seen as uh, masters of poisoning. Uh, plantation owners were worried that a slave would deliver to them a cool drink, but a slave with a bit of poison under a fingernail would dip the finger in the drink and kill the family. They were also afraid that um, Africans would poison the entire plantation, all of their livestock and all of their slaves. So poisoning was very much feared. For this reason, the French outlawed all African medicine completely in 1764. And how do you account for this this difference between what's happening in the British colonies uh, and what's happening in the French colonies in both these traditions, Obeya and Voodoo, and in how Europeans perceive that? Yeah. So uh, scholars of Obeya and Voodoo emphasize that these are not just raw African traditions, but they developed over the course of centuries, mixing with the traditions in the Caribbean islands. So this is how people explain the different, you know, the, some of the differences between Obeya and Voodoo. Voodoo is quite a mixture with Catholic traditions as well. It's very interesting. You get kind of the saints and you get, I mean, you know, it, it's very African, but you do get this mixing also of with Catholicism. So um, it, these are distinct traditions, but you can see common African roots. Hmm. Um, well, so as we're beginning to uh, come in on 
to the close of this interview, have we missed anything about your book that you want to make sure is said here? Well, I think it's very interesting that women were part of clinical trials in the 18th century. You probably know that in the United States, we had to enact a public law in the 1990s to make sure that women were included in clinical trials and that medicines worked as efficiently on women as they did on men. It's very rare that we legislate science this federal law that required women be included in medical experiments uh, was bizarre to say the least, but required because NIH had, or the government, uh, the Congress had several times told NIH to make sure that they are testing women so that drugs will work equally well for men and women. So surprising to my uh, 20th and 21st century eyes was that women were part of Uh, experiments already in the 18th century. Uh, Physicians in the 18th century always looked at sex and age and something they called temperament. Um, And you can see them then across the 19th century adding race to that. So those were the kinds of variables they used. And if we look at the very first smallpox experiments that took place at Newgate Prison in 1721, Some historians have reported that as those experiments done with six men. But if you actually read the documents, it was done with three men and three women, and they were matched uh, by age as closely as possible. Two pairs were matched uh, perfectly by age, and then you could see they didn't have enough prisoners to choose from. And the third pair is not, uh, they're close, but not exactly same age. So I find this interesting, and I think it's a topic for uh, some more research as to when were women defined out of medicine as a subject, not that anyone wants to be the subject of a medical experiment, but nonetheless, it's important to test on males and females so that we know if our techniques work properly. So I'm not quite sure when it was defined out, whether over the course of the 18th century um, or, or maybe later in the 19th century. We can look at maybe three factors that might be part of that. Medical doctors were all men and sometimes uh, medical students were used in experiments. But then you could say, well, there were large populations of nurses who would also be perfect for these kinds of medical experiments. Um, A lot of experiments were done on prisoners, and prison populations became more male over the course of time. Um, So there are are just a number of things we would like to look at. And, And so, Lana, what are you working on now? What has grown out of this project? Well, grown out of this project, so I'm taking a bit of a break from the 18th century. I do this very often. I'm now devoting my time to my project called Gendered Innovations in Science, Health and Medicine, Engineering and Environment, where we look at, we develop methods and um, examples of how integrating sex and gender analysis into the design of research enhances excellence in science and technology. I was just in Japan uh, talking uh, to their 
the equivalents of the NSF and the NIH there um, about this. I was just in Australia talking about this. I worked very closely with the European Commission on this topic. Um, it's very important uh, to get science right to also look at sex and gender as variables. You probably know that the NIH in January 2016 put in a requirement that any NIH-funded research needs to consider sex as a biological variable across the lifespan. So that's what I'm working on now. I do, in, it's incredibly interesting. We're looking at AI and all of the gender issues there. We're looking at robotics. We're looking at um, environmental issues. And so um, it's really fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and for this wonderful interview. Yes. Okay. Okay, thanks. Thanks.